All right, well, here's what we're going to do. We are going to continue in the series that we've been talking on, on Acts. And, uh, and if you didn't know, what we're doing is Acts is a story, and it's the, the, um, the historical reference and the historical happenings of the early church and how they got started after Christ went up to heaven and, um, and after his death, resurrection, went up to heaven. And so we want to model this church after the first church, and that's our goal. And so what we want to do is study that. So we're walking straight through, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts. And so here's what we've covered just to bring you up to date. We talked about the promise in our first week, and the promise was this. It was the Holy Spirit. Uh, The the Holy Spirit was not available to all prior to um, Christ's death and resurrection, but after that, um, he then came down, and he is now in available to indwell in each one of us and to give us the power, the power to do what? That was the second week. We talked about the message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and uh, the ability to be right standing with him and with the Father. Uh, And then we talked about the community. That was Bob. Bob talked about the community a little bit um, and the community that they had all things in common. The church started at that point in time, and they had all things in common, and then they made a big mistake. That was Ananias and Sapphira. They took a left turn. They died because they lied, and now we are here at this point where today we're going to talk about a guy named Stephen, um, and we're going to talk about the cost of being a disciple, the cost of following Christ, the cost of being a part of the church, because everything has a cost. Everything has a cost. We have big decisions. I actually did a wedding uh, a couple weeks ago, or actually last week, and I went to a wedding in Colorado. In Colorado, um, uh, we went there, and uh, a good friend was getting married, and she, uh, she was, decided that she wanted to have her wedding um, outside uh, in Colorado in February. And so it was 12 degrees, and so we knew that I needed to have some clothes that would, that would fit, and like the only big jackets that I have are like Carhartts, so I thought I'd just wear like long underwear underneath. Um, but when we got off the plane and stood outside, we realized that's not going to happen. And so prior to leaving, I actually asked Lauren, if you guys know Lauren, um, uh, you know, the most attractive man that we've ever met in the world. Um, And so Lauren, uh, I asked if I could borrow his jacket, but I looked like I was wearing like a tent, you know, um, because it just didn't look the same on me as it did on him uh, kind of a deal. Uh, And so my wife decided that we need to get a a pea coat. Do you guys know what that is? I didn't know what a peacoat was, and so when we walked into Macy's and I asked the guy, you know, I need to get a pea jacket or the gal, a pea jacket, uh, she stopped looking at me and then looked at my wife because she obviously knew this guy has no idea what he's talking about. And so um, we got a pea coat, and I don't know if you know this, it cost $175 for a coat. A coat. Do you guys know what I do for a living? Yeah, I'm a pastor. Yeah, that's what I do. And I did not get into this occupation for the money because there's just not a lot in this occupation. So we spent $175 on a peacoat, um, which is a high cost to pay. It just seems crazy to me. My wife said so, so I did it. Um, And that's another cost right there. If you're single and you're thinking about getting married, there is a cost to getting married. (laughs) It's what's called freedom. Have you ever heard of that? So when you say, I do, you're saying, I don't anymore to freedom is how it works. And so your bank account is no longer your bank account. You no longer get to choose what food you want to eat anymore. You don't even get to choose your own vacations. Um, And I didn't know this because I wish they would have put this in the I do's. But for my wife, uh, the big cost I have to pay is on Monday nights when she wants me to watch The Bachelor. So... 
she asks if I would sit down, and I, I've seen what trash looks like. I could go look at a garbage can, you know, it's totally fine. And I could stare at that and it would be about the same amount of enjoyment, but I love my wife. And so on, on Monday nights, I get to find out who Nick is kissing that night. Um, and I don't really care who he's going to marry, but I love my wife and who I married, but there was a cost to getting married. There's a cost to kids, so maybe you're married and you don't have kids yet, but there is a cost when it comes to kids. In fact, the freedom that you thought you gave up completely, you realized you had a little bit left, and then when you have kids, it goes all the way. There's no more freedom after that. There's no sleeping either. That is a cost. Um, in fact, I don't know if you know this. Um, actually, what's hilarious is the other day, the, one of the costs I didn't know was in, involved in this is I was changing Percy's diaper. It was one of the nice soft moments with my son, and I'm picking him up, and I'm cuddling him, like, I love you. And he just punched me in the face. <laughs> like right in the nose for no reason, fist everything. I mean, I, my eyes started to water because he hit me pretty hard. I have a strong boy, not as strong as Lauren, but strong boy. <laughs> and so um, it's totally crazy. But average cost for a kid, so you know, is $304,000. $304,000 to raise a kid. And that's just like the first week, all right? <laughs> $304,000. There is a cost to everything because when you say yes to this, you're saying no to that. And so there is a cost to everything, and there's even a cost to being a disciple. Jesus talks about this. In order to follow Christ, in order to be a part of his church, a part of his community, there is a cost. And Jesus talks about that in Luke. He says this. He suppo says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? In the same way, those of you who do not give, um, in the same way, those of you who do not give up, and here's how much, everything you have, that is the cost right there, everything you have cannot be my disciple. That's a lot, isn't it? I want to make one thing clear as we go through this, and that is this, is that salvation is free. Salvation is free. You don't have to pay for salvation. There's no cost for salvation itself. Actually, salvation wasn't free. It's just Jesus paid that cost, a price that we could never, ever pay. He paid that price for us. And the only thing in return, the one thing that he asks for is that we would follow him. That's what he asks in return. I paid the price that you couldn't pay, so I ask that you follow me. He says this. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me or to follow me, he must deny himself, which is a lot, take up his cross, that is the cost, and follow me. And so here's the one thought for the day. What does it cost? What is the price that we need to pay? Following Christ will cost you your life. Following Christ will cost your life everything, your whole life. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at a guy named Stephen in the book of Acts, chapter 6. He was the first martyr, the first one to lay down his life for the cause of Christ. He was the very, very first one. And so how did he lay that down? Why did he lay it down? I want to look at those things. But there's kind of a problem in going through this, and that is this. We've been going like verse by verse, section by section, um, word by word, through the, um, through the passages of Acts. And we cannot do that today, and here's why. is because it literally, the story of Stephen takes up two full chapters. 
So it's 75 verses. So here's how we're going to handle it. I'm going to basically give you the highlights. I'm going to zoom in and zoom out, and I'm going to fill in the gaps for you between the scriptures of what's actually happening and hit the ones that are the most important. In order, Otherwise, we're going to be here at this time tomorrow if we went verse by verse, word by word through everything. So we're going to kind of zoom in and zoom out. So I ask for grace as we go through this because this is a lot of scripture to walk through. This is a whole huge chunk. And so let's do that. Let's talk about Stephen, chapter 6 of Acts, and it starts with the selecting of seven. The selecting of seven. And so what happens in the church, here's where we're at. There's been a lot of great things going on, lots of love. Everyone's loving each other. They had all things in common. And then what happens is, this is how you know it's a real church, is because people start to complain. You'll see right here that between the Aramaic-speaking Jews and the uh, Greek-speaking believers, all of a sudden they're complaining about my widows are not getting as much food as these widows are getting, and so you're shorting us. So they're arguing in here about the distribution of food, and specifically to the widows. And so here's what the apostles do about it in verse 2. So the 12, those are the apostles, which the apostles mean sent ones, gathered all the disciples together. So at this point, there are about thousands of disciples, thousands upon thousands of disciples. So it's not just the 12 anymore. In fact, the 12 are called apostles now, and the rest, the followers, are called disciples. So there's thousands of them. And they said, it would not be right for us to neglect or abandon or ignore or disregard the ministry of the word of God. So what he's talking about here is the teaching, the preaching, the message, the good news. That is, we cannot disregard that in order to wait on tables. So what the apostles are not saying here, and this is very important, they're not saying that serving food is beneath me, that I'm too important and my role is too big because I believe the apostles, they would have cleaned toilets if they had toilets. They would have done that. They would have done the dirty work and they were willing to do it, but this is where we start to see how the Bible and the church moves into different roles within the church. And see, the apostles were uniquely equipped. They were specifically, um, they had specific experience because they walked with Jesus, they talked with Jesus, they were friends with Jesus, they knew the messages. So they were uniquely shaped to share the message. And they could not abandon doing that to serve tables. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that was their role and they needed to find other people to do the role of serving tables. And it was obviously important feeding the hungry because here's what the apostles do. They said this in verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known, and this is interesting, who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility, this responsibility of waiting tables, over to them and we will give our attention, our focus, our care to the two primary goals, the two primary roles that they are supposed to do of to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles knew what their role was. They had two primary things that they were to do, to preach and, and to pray. To preach and to pray. And then in verse 5 it says this, this proposal pleased the whole group. They, being the whole church, chose, they elected, selected, and handpicked, and then here comes our guy, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is Luke goes on and he talks about the other six guys, he names them, and then the apostles pray for them, and that's what happens there. But what I find interesting, and I don't know if you caught this, was the unique qualifications to wait tables. Did you catch what it was? To be full of the Spirit. Did you guys catch that? 
to be full of the Spirit. You need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to wait on tables. So let me ask you, is that, do you think that is a qualification? Do you think that nobody without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit could actually serve food to other people? It's a very interesting question. They could probably do the act because there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus, who do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, um, and they can serve food. They can work in the food industry. They totally can. But in order for that to be an act of worship, in order for that experience to be an act of worship, you need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So yes, every act of service is an act of worship if it's done through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And this is why I love Stephen. Is because Stephen, you'll find out later, he had some special abilities, but yet he was willing to serve in the mundane. He was willing to serve. He had the ability, you'll find this out later, to heal people, to do miracles, and yet he served tables. He was willing to serve in the mundane. And I love that. I love that. And it's the same for us. Hopefully, we're willing to serve in the mundane. When you're around your house and you're looking around and you see the dishes starting to pile up and you think, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. That's, that's, that's her job or that's his job or that's my roommate's job. Please, don't allow your resentment to build up with the dishes. Serve the other people in your house. Go there. Do the dishes. And when you do it, that is an act of worship. It is an act of worship. Dads, if all of a sudden your little toddler runs by and you catch a, a little sniff of what just went by and you realize, oh my gosh, my, my son, my daughter, they are ripe right now. Don't wait for your wife to figure that out. Like, oh, she'll get it. That's, that's her job. No. Take, grab that toddler, plug your nose, go there and change your diaper. That is an act of worship. To be willing to serve in the mundane. If you have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside you, your acts of service are an act of worship. It's just how it is. And so not only was Stephen willing to serve in the mundane, but in verse 8 we see that he is willing to speak in the moment. He's willing to speak in the moment. And so in verse 8 it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, again, highly qualified, performed great wonders and miraculous signs among the people, and along with that, he was preaching and he was teaching. And because he was doing that, opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, which is a Jewish church. And then specifically, these are Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who unfortunately began an argument with Stephen. Now here's what's interesting. This is totally a side note. This is just fun historical things. But I, I, I mean, total side note here. But it is very possible, very possible, in fact, probably probable that what, who Stephen is arguing with is a guy we haven't been introduced to yet by the name of Saul. There's a very good shot that Saul, if you don't know who he is, he will later come to know Jesus. He will be called Paul. His name will change. And he wrote most of the New Testament. But at this point in time, he is against Christianity. He is actively trying to squish it, to squash it, to kill it. That's what he's trying to do. And there's a very good shot that the guy who's arguing with Stephen is actually Paul. And the reason we know this is, number one, is that Paul will be present at the stoning of Stephen. He actually is standing there, orchestrating it, watching as it happens. He's the man in charge. But even more interesting is this, is they talk about um, that, they, that um, these people that came, the synagogue of the freedmen. So Paul is from a place called Tarsus, 
which Tarsus is the capital of Cilicia, and Cilicia is one of the, seas, the, the regions that are actually there arguing with Paul. So there's a very good shot that the person that is arguing with Stephen is Paul, which I think is awesome, but what's even more awesome is this, is verse 10. But they, being all the Jewish priests, and Paul included probably, could not stand up or compete or match or hold their own against the wisdom of that the Holy Spirit gave him, him being Stephen, as he spoke. So what's crazy, we know Paul, right? We know Paul is eloquent. We know Paul has, can argue. You can definitely tell that when you read through the New Testament. This guy is educated. But you know why he couldn't stand up against Stephen? Is because Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit and Paul was not. Stephen was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they were not. He was willing to serve in the mundane, and he was willing to speak in the moment. And oftentimes, when it comes to having conversations with people, talking about Jesus, sharing our faith, we feel like we're tongue-tied. And the truth is, we have the Holy Spirit. If we know Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit inside us, and he will give us the ability to speak and the words to say, even when we don't know what those words are. He speaks through us. And so here's what happens next. They couldn't beat him in an argument, so they decided we're going to lie about him. So what they did is they falsely accused him and basically sent people out to say, hey, you know what? This guy, Stephen, he's spreading lies out there. He's talking bad things about the temple. He's saying that the, um, that the law that um, Moses put into place, they're not, they're not paying attention to that. And so they're going to seize him and arrest him. And so they seize him and arrest him based upon these lies. They brought him before the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin, however you want to say that, which is the supreme council that's the high court of Israel, which is about 70 men plus the high priest. So they bring them before these guys, and there's this interesting verse as he's standing here on what is kind of like a little trial. It says in 8 and 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, again, 71 men, looked intently at Stephen. They were staring at him. Why? Because they saw that his face here was, I and mean, here's where it gets crazy, was like that, a face of an angel. Was like the face of an angel. Now, I've never seen an angel. I never have. I've never seen an angel. But I don't think what, the, the, what Luke is saying here in this passage is that he was really attractive, right? That he was really good looking. And so all of a sudden he looked at him and he looked attractive. No, in fact, theologians believe, and this is cool, that there was a visible manifestation in Stephen's face, which means this, is that it was glowing. If you look at the actual Greek, it looked like it was glowing. And if, you, if that might trigger something, if you've read your Bible before, that Moses, when he was in the presence of God and he was before God, all of a sudden he would come down from Mount Sinai and his face was glowing. And scripture is kind of telling us that that's the same thing that is happening right here is like Moses, he is seeing God. You'll see that in a second. He's seeing into heaven, and his face looks like joy from inside out. It's glowing from the inside out, and his face is actually illuminated. And then we hit chapter 7. In chapter 7, they're all staring at him, and then they ask him one question. Really, just one simple question. Then the high priest, his name's Caiaphas, asked Stephen, are these charges true? That's all they asked him. Are these charges true? One question, and, and the charges again is that he's breaking temple law, is that he's breaking temple, which he is not doing at this point in time. And so they're asking that. And so all he has to do is say no, right? That's all he has to do. I need you to understand who he's actually talking to. So the Sanhedrin, 
are the exact same people, same members, same guys that murdered Jesus. When Jesus was on trial, he was brought before the Sanhedrin. And it was there that the high priest asked him, are you God? And he said, I am. And he literally was murdered at that point in time. And so it is crazy right here. So all Stephen has to do is say, no, that's not true, and he's done. But Stephen doesn't say no. He does not say no. In fact, he goes into the longest speech in the book of Acts. It literally takes up the entire chapter 7. And we're going to go verse by verse, line by, no, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. (laughs) He goes into the longest speech that is in pretty much the New Testament. And what he does is this, is he talks about the history of Israel to the historians of Israel. These guys know the history. They understand it. He talks about Moses, and they talk about Joshua, and they talk about Abraham and Joseph, and they talk about David and Solomon and the temple and all those things. He goes into that. And why would he go and tell these historians the history, this long story of the history of Israel? It doesn't seem to make any sense, but the truth is he was being strategic. It was amazing, super strategic, because they know the stories, but what he's saying is he's saying these people, these events, these things that happen, the history that you know has led us to this pinnacle, to this moment, to this person, and that person is Jesus. He's saying all that has happened up to this point, what you know, your faith, what you believe in, all those things have culminated into here. And so if you ever want to read like a short, like concise version of the Old Testament, just read Acts chapter 7. It's like the cliff notes. And then it ends with saying, hey, and Jesus is the pinnacle of that. And so that's what he ended up saying. Now, here's where he gets into trouble. This is in his conclusion. So he does really well all the way up until the last three Verses And in the last three verses, he's not exactly very tactful. He's definitely not politically correct, and he's truly not very sensitive. Um, and so look at how he says this. I, I don't know why I love this, but, I mean, if he was wanting to die, this is what you tell people if you want to die. <laughs> so it's awesome. He's like, you stiff-necked people. That's, he's talking to the leaders of the leaders right here. You stiff-necked people. And he's actually quoting God. He's quoting God as God talks to Israel. So this is sensitive. He says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, meaning you are hard of hearing and you're you're also hard of hearts, hardened hearts. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, he's like, he's, he's taking the buttering them up approach. He's, he's, he's coming in from the side. He's, he's getting them to like him. But then it gets better because Stephen says this. He says, Where th- was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of, and this is cool, the righteous one. And so the righteous one is obviously Jesus, right? The righteous one he's talking about is Jesus. But that term righteous one is seldom used in reference to Jesus, ironically. And I'll explain that in just a little bit, but I'll get back to that. And says, and now, Stephen says, you have betrayed and murdered him. So you basically murdered God. Good job. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. And so, friends, when you are going to be sharing and having gospel conversations with friends and telling them about the good news of Christ, I'm, I'm going to suggest that you don't take Stephen's approach. 
right? This is not how you share the gospel with somebody. This is descriptive, not prescriptive when it comes to God's word. And so here's what it is in 54, um, in verse 54. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. Of course. Doesn't surprise me. And they gnashed their teeth at him. Which, you know, I kind of never understood that. Like, what is gnashing of teeth? I mean, I know your dentist probably says it's not good. But I don't truly know what it is. Just biting your teeth and they're angry. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Now check this out. This is so cool. Looked up to heaven and saw. He got a glimpse, a sneak peek, a preview of the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's very interesting. Stephen said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Now for you people who know your Bible well, let me ask you this question. When Jesus is referenced next to the Father in heaven, how is he referenced? He is referenced on the right-hand side, but how is he referenced? Sitting. Exactly. In every other piece in the Bible, every other section throughout here, when that is mentioned, and it's mentioned a bunch of times that the Son is at the right hand, sitting at the right hand of the Father, it is sitting, not standing. This is the only place, the only passage where Jesus is referenced to be standing. Now, we don't know exactly why. There's some thoughts. Maybe he's standing up to get a better look at what's going on because he's really interested in what's happening with Stephen in this moment. Some uh, theologians believe in Jewish custom, it was custom for someone who's going to give witness for someone in a court of law that they would stand up and maybe, maybe Jesus is giving witness on behalf of Stephen to the Father saying, that guy's with me, I stand with him, and he's giving witness on his behalf. But what I find super interesting, super, super interesting, is that he's referenced, Jesus in this moment is referenced by what? By Stephen. How was he, what was he called? The righteous one. Hold on, the righteous one. Remember that? The righteous one. What does the word righteous mean? Like literal, it's a literal translation. It means right standing. Isn't that amazing? Right standing. And so in some ways, it's very rarely used that he's called the righteous one. It is in this passage and in the same passage where Jesus is standing right next to the Father. He's right standing with the Father. I just find that so fascinating. But apparently... The Sanhedrin didn't think it was as fascinating. So they, at this point, covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, which I, that picture, do you not just like, they cover their ears and they're like, la, 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 I'm not listening to you, and then they run at him. Like, I just get that, that's in my head, I'm sorry. And they attacked him and they dragged him out of the city and begged and began to stone him, which means they were pelting rocks at him with the intent to kill him, with the intent to murder him, to take his life from him. And then in verse 59, it says this. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, in here, this is something else we read over very quickly, but it's very, very interesting. Who is Stephen praying to? Notice that. Jesus. If you are a good Jewish boy and you have been brought up in Jewish custom, who do you pray to? There's only one person, and it's very important that you pray to God. You pray to the one God, right? You pray to the one God. And yet Stephen is praying to Jesus. This is just a piece of evidence. This is early picture into the early church that they actually believed that Jesus was God at that time. It's very interesting. 
Very interesting. Now, the last verse, here it is, verse 60. It says this. Then he, being Stephen, fell on his knees and cried out, just like Jesus, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. Stephen is literally praying for the forgiveness of those who are murdering him in that moment. Think about how amazing that is. He is truly, like Christ, praying for them in the moment that he is actually being murdered. I don't know about you, but I, you know, when someone cuts me off in traffic, I, my first gut reaction isn't to pray for them. If they're tailgating me, I'm not praying for them. That's not my first shot. My first shot is to show them the small, limited amount of sign language that I actually do know out the window. That's my first inkling. That's where I want to go. And then I just... And then I pray they don't follow me into the church parking lot. You know what I mean? So. But Stephen is literally forgiving in the moment those people who are murdering him. That is amazing. Stephen, Stephen was an amazing man. He served in the mundane. He was willing, although he had the ability to heal people and to, and to speak, he served in the mundane. He served tables. He also spoke in the moment when he didn't have to. Catch that. He didn't have to. They asked him, is this true? He could have said no and gone about his business, but he didn't. He decided to give them a whole speech about how Jesus is the one and then tell them how bad they were for killing him, which eventually killed him and it cost him his life. So following Christ will cost you your life. It costs Stephen his life. It costs us our life. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to die for your faith, that you're going to be a martyr, but you will in order to. The cost of following Jesus is that we would give him our life. Our whole life, how we live, not just in our death, but how we live. And so I want to take just a few moments and I want to look at that cost. I want to break down that and like what is it that we are actually giving to Christ? What is he asking from us? And here's number one. When you decide to become a Christian, when you decide to follow Jesus, one of the things that it costs you is it will cost you your will. It will cost you your will. So your dreams, your hopes, your plans, your future, what you wanted to do, these things that you had... You have to lay that down at the altar. You lay that down at Christ's feet, and you say, not my will, Lord, but thy will. When you follow Jesus, it's not your will. It's not what you want to do. It's what God wants. We want to do what God wants us to do. That's why we pray, let thy will be done. And we should always pray that because God knows better than us. And so thy will be done. The first thing that it costs us is our will. The second thing here is it costs Stephen that, by the way, his will. I'm sure he had a family, right? I'm sure he had people that loved him. He had dreams and hopes and plans, and he lost that. The second thing is reputation. You'll probably lose your reputation. So Stephen served tables that probably didn't bother him that much, but what probably did bother him was when they called him a blasphemer. And we didn't read that in the exact text, but it's in there, that he actually was called a blasphemer. He was called a liar, someone who was not sharing the truth when he actually, in all actuality, had the truth. He was the one. And so when you call, follow Christ, when you decide to follow him, the cost of that is that your name doesn't matter as much as Christ's name matters. It's about his name and making his name known, not our name known. It's not the fame that we can grab for ourselves. It's the fame that we can put into Christ's name. We're trying to make him popular, to make him known. And so the cost is our will, our reputation, and our time. The third one is our time. Stephen's time was cut short, right? Probably had a lot he wanted to do, a lot he wanted to accomplish. And the most valuable thing that we have on this planet is time. Is it not? 
we maybe don't treat it like that because we waste time. But the most valuable thing that we got more than anything else is time. And truly, when we've, in Christ, when he says, if you're going to follow me, I want your time. I want what you decide to do, how you spend your days. Stephen lost his time, but time is short. And when we follow Christ, he wants our time. So it will be our will, our reputation, our time, but it will also cost us, and here's the last one, money. And so if you're really paying attention, probably some of you guys are like, well, wait, Jake, where's that in the passage? It's not. It's not in there whatsoever. But we're just starting off this church, and we have to talk about money at some point. So I'm throwing it in there right now. We have to talk about money. We truly do. And, and I'm not going to be ashamed ever to talk about money because Jesus talked about money a whole heck of a lot. In fact, he talked about money more than he talked about heaven. He talked about money a lot. And so I want to chat for just a few seconds on it. And it's not just because it's not in this particular passage. It is a cost of following Christ. Because what does God ask us for? He asks us for 10% of what? Of his stuff. It's his money. I mean, we are stewards. When we are a follower of Christ, we are stewards of his money. And so he's asking us for just a portion of what he already owns. You know what's interesting? It's probably the most valuable thing on the planet is time, right? But yet we will give our time quicker than we will give our money which is super interesting. And so my hope is this, is my hope is if you're calling this church, if you're just starting to come, and I guess all of us are just starting to come, um, my hope is if this is going to be your church home, we've got to start giving. We need to get that in order as a church, that we need to start tithing, not tipping. Tipping is like, oh, here's what's in my, um, here's in my wallet today, or here's what I can give, or here's what I can spare for this moment. Tithing is being a percentage giver. Giving 10% is what God actually asks us for. That's what he asks us for, and that's what I'm asking you for. If, that is, if this is going to be your church home, we've got to get that in order in our church. We've got to get that in alignment. And the reason God wants your money is not because he doesn't have enough money and he can't get money. It's because it's tied directly to our heart. And one of the best ways to do, just throw your heart at the feet of God is to tithe. You'll be shocked at how much God, how, how, you, how close you feel to God and how he'll come through for you in those ways when you actually do tithe. And so let's, let's I, want, I want us to do that now. So if you're not doing that, I want you to jump in it. And, if, and actually one thing, one suggestion, and, and as a pastor, I never want to share stories about where I do it right. You know, most of the time if you're a pastor, the cardinal rule is you tell stories where you fail. Um, your failure stories that you want to share. But one story where I've actually got it right was actually in this, in tithing. See, my wife and I, we haven't missed tithing in 20 years. In the last 20 years, we have been faithful. I can say that. And it's not because I'm so good and I always remember on a Sunday morning because I don't. I would not. It's because of this crazy thing called automatic withdrawal, which was unbelievable. And years, 20 years ago, I made a decision to jump in and do automatic withdrawal from the church. And it's made all the difference because every time the offering buckets go or every time offering is um, open... I remember, oh my gosh, I am faithful in this. I have been faithful in this because 20 years ago I made a decision. And so you can jump on our website. It's under the give button. But if you're a part of this church, it is time to get that in order inside of our church. We've got a lot of people coming, but we need to have those people who are staying here to move forward in the church. Because let me give you a perspective. Let me just be flat out honest with you. I didn't do this in first service, all right? I talked to another church planter the other day. Um, just yesterday. They have 300 people coming. We have about 400 that are happening on a regular basis on Sunday morning. Do you know how many staff members they have? They have nine staff members. 
for their 300 churches. Do you know how many staff members we have? Oh, yeah, it's me. Yeah, that's what it is right now, just me. And so in order for us to truly move and to grow this church and to move in ways and do groups and do um, outreach and do those kind of things, we need more than just me because I will not sacrifice my family for this church. I will not. And so if my time at the end of time comes, I'm done. But we need more people to start doing the ministry. And in order to do that, we need to get our finances in order. Does that make sense? That's real talk right there. Sorry, that did not come out in first service. Um, but there you are. Allison's like, oh, crap, what's Jake saying now? <laughs> Cut it off. Exactly. All right, so that is the cost. All right, and again, this is not salvation. This is the cost to follow. And so here's the cool thing, and this is the part that's great. I talked about what does it cost. Let's talk about what we get from that. Because sometimes we get more than we bargained for, right? You ever bought something and you feel like you got more than you bargained for out of that thing? So when I bought that peacoat, right, I'll tell you this, I was warm during the wedding. I was definitely warm and 12 degrees. But you know what else? I look good to my wife. That's also, I also look good to my wife. Not as good as Lauren looks, you know, right? But I looked good to my wife in that peacoat. And to my wife, when I made that decision to follow her, when I counted that cost and I decided to, um, to enter into marriage with her, um, I got way more than I bargained for. I truly, truly, truly got way more. She is so patient with me. I mean, I, I, I truly, I, she puts up with a lot when it comes to me. And she is so patient. I got so much more in that deal. Um, Tim Keller, I said this actually at the wedding. I quoted this. I'd never read it before about marriage and knowing someone and truly knowing and loving someone. Check this out. It says, to be loved but not known, it's comforting but it's superficial. Think about that. To be known and not loved, or to be, to be loved and not known, that's superficial. To be known and not loved. Did I say that wrong? I did. Let's, okay, reverse, back it up. We're going to do that again. To be loved but not known, that is comforting. Right? That's comforting, but it's superficial. Now, here's the big part. Um, but to be known and not loved, that is our greatest fear. Think about that. That is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything else. And my wife gives me that. She loves me sacrificially. And if I have to, on Monday nights, watch um, The Bachelor every Monday night just for that, that's a small price to pay for the amount of love and sacrificial love that I've got from my wife. Counting the cost in that was easy. Now think about your kids. If you have kids, I'm so proud of my kids, right? Allison said this the other day, this week, when we were getting ready, she said this. She says, um, having kids is like watching your heart walk around outside of your body. It's absolutely true. And sometimes it is scary. Sometimes it's super fun unless your kid punches you in the face. <laughs> right? And then it's painful. And it's painful. And you guys know as parents, it's painful. If your kid ever said, I hate you, that's painful. That's so painful, even if they don't even know what they're saying. But let me ask you this. If you're a parent, is it worth it? Oh, my gosh. You wouldn't trade it for anything, would you? No. You would not trade it for anything. It is so worth it. And so when it comes to following Christ, it is so worth it. So worth it. It is the best decision that I have ever made in my life. And look at this. Jesus said, come to me. So he's saying, follow me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And I, Jesus, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That is the cost. And learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. That's, he's talking about the peace that passes all understanding. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the cost. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think about that. 
This is, seems like it's almost in conflict. Jesus is saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying the cost is easy and the cost is light. But yet he's also saying, catch this, that it t- costs you your whole life. It costs you everything, right? How is that even possible? It doesn't seem possible until you compare what you get when you pay the cost. You compare what the benefit of following Jesus is. See, we have our little life right here. And then you hold it up to eternity, and this seems like nothing. It seems easy. I will pay that. You you think about that. Truly, our life, which is so much and so important to us, and it's so big, and it's everything we got. But yet, when we pay that, when we give Christ, when we lay down our life, we get eternity with him, right standing with God, available to be in eternity, in happiness, in peace, in joy for the rest of our life. And it's cost this. It's nothing. It's not that much. It's so, 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 hear me on this. So, 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 so worth it. So worth it. This life for eternity. And what was cool is in Stephen's situation, when he's being pelted with rocks, when he's being stoned to death, what did he get to see? He got to see his future. He got to see heaven. Heaven literally opened up. He could see inside. He could see Jesus. Jesus is down there standing up, looking at him, saying, hey, man, great job. You're doing good. Hold on for 30 more seconds, and then I will see you in person. He truly got a glimpse into heaven. He got to see what we only get to dream about right now, but one day from knowing Jesus, we will get to experience. And that's complete peace. And that is eternity forever and ever and ever. And it's so, 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 so worth it. So worth it. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. Today, we're going to have a chance to respond. We haven't done this, and nor could we do this, because we didn't have enough room in this room before. But now, we've moved to two services. We get to respond. And here's how that looks. That's what that's going to look like. You're going to have five ways to respond to Jesus' message, his request. Now, my hope is, and some of you, I believe you're going to need to realign your life with Jesus in this moment. You're going to have that opportunity. Maybe some of you need to surrender your life for the very first time. You're going to have that opportunity. Some of you maybe just need help. You're going to have that opportunity. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to sing three songs in response to what we heard, to the response to Jesus and the price he's paid for us. And so what's going to happen is we're going to have a chance to respond in worship. They're going to play for three songs, and we can worship God and tell him, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We can do that. That's one way. Another way is this, is that there is a cross in the back, and there will be people there. And so if you need prayer for you, something is going on in your world, and you are overwhelmed, you are overcome, you can't handle it, and you need someone to pray and go to Jesus on your behalf, or you just want to connect with someone and share your pain in that moment that will pray for you, you've got it right there. They're going to be standing in the back, and they will pray for you. Next is this. We've got these candles in the front, okay? I know it looks a little Catholic. truly looks that way. But what it is is this, is you're going to have an opportunity to pray for somebody else. There, someone will stand in the gap for you. But if you know somebody in your life who needs prayer, then come up here light a candle on their behalf and stand in the gap for them and seek Jesus on their behalf and symbolically this will represent the prayer that you prayed on behalf of them. You can respond in those ways. You also can respond in giving. 
So we have boxes in the back, right, or boxes on the side, two stations on the side. And you can go ahead and you can drop your offering inside of there. And you know what else you could do? You could stay seated in your chair and look up on your phone online giving and figure out how to set that up right here and now. That is an act of worship. So we will not, if you just want to play on your phone, you can look like you're actually giving in this next little bit <laughs> if you want to. But truthfully, you can respond in giving in that way, and the boxes are on the side. And then the last one is this, and I'm so excited to do this because this will be the first time that we get to take communion as a church. We have not done it yet. And communion is a chance to remember what? The price that Christ paid for us. To remember his body broken. His blood spilled out for us. And we get to take communion, partake of the bread and of the cup. And in doing so, we remember the sacrifice and what he paid for us even though we couldn't pay it. And all he asks in return, you guys, is come follow me. Hey, just give me your life. Just give me everything you have. It looks so cool because it's worth it. It is so, so, so worth it. So worth it. And so we're going to respond in that way. Now, here's my one thought. We have three songs. The first service, when I said we have a chance to respond, everybody responded in the same moment. You have time. We're going to sit in this moment. I'm going to pray in just a second that the Holy Spirit would rest in this plant. And you can do business with God. You can respond to him in your way. You can do all five of these things, or you can do one. You can do none. But my prayer is that you would just respond. You would respond to him. If you need prayer, that's in the back. If you want to pray for someone else, that's right here. If you want to give, it's on the sides. If you want to take communion, it's here. But we always have the ability to lead and sing and say thank you and worship, and we're going to do that now. And so do me a favor. Let's stand as I pray. And we will ask the Holy Spirit to come into this moment, not like he's not already here, and we will engage in a response with him. And so take your time and soak in this moment. Jesus, I will always start off by saying thank you to you. And the biggest thank you is paying the price that we could not pay. It, you died for us. You didn't have to, but you did. You did. You chose to die on our behalf. And so I pray that the price that you paid, that we would count the cost in our life. And what does it cost to follow you? And Lord, I, I think I just pray for every person here, especially for those who are maybe gone astray in their relationship with God, though, with you, um, maybe those who have gone um, or never actually given a relationship to you or put trust or lay down or count the cost. I pray that you would give them courage and strength today to do what is needed. May your Holy Spirit rest in this room. May it rest in this, may it be thick in this place so that we can respond to you in courage. Give us the power, give us the strength to do what we need to do, but mostly help us to count the cost and say yes to you. Yes to you. You are so worth it, Jesus. You have my life. From now until forever, you have my life. I pray that we would all give you our lives continually in every moment of our days.